If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy. And my name is Ricky. And today we've got for you On the Nature of Reality, featuring former fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, Ian McGilchrist, and the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And this discussion took place in 2023 at How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay on Wye, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Ricky, tell us a bit more about the discussion. Well, this was a really good one. I saw it in person, actually. And yes, it had Ian McGilchrist, who's obviously quite famous for his work on the left and right hemispheres of the brain and how one is linked to creativity and the other to logic and manipulation and how that alters our view of the world. And then, obviously, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, and looking into consciousness research a lot at the moment. So two very big names having an excellent discussion. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now it's over to Ian and Rowan for Philosophy for Our Times. Well, I think I'm going to be the one that kicks off, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) Um, First of all, it's um, a a great honour and pleasure to be able to have this conversation, Rowan. We've talked in public before and in private, but it's always an honour. And I think, to a large extent, we, we have um, fairly similar visions of the cosmos, I, I, I believe, um, although we do maybe have points of difference. But what I wanted to say, because I think one of the, the issues we're asking about is the nature of reality, and so we've got less than half an hour to get there. One of the important points about it is that it has always seemed to me since childhood, and certainly since my teens, that the world was rather different from the one that is often explained in the modern idiom, which is of a world which is largely sort of passively there and not responsive to us, that um, opposites um, get as far away from one another as possible, whereas I believe they tend to coincide, and that context makes a huge difference and that things are connected one with another, and the process of the intellect is to divide them up. That dividing up is very important, of course, but it's only a preparatory phase to reconnecting something that is now more complex. And that, I think, is the bit that we've lost sight of. So in the realms of epistemology, as I've laid out in the second part of my uh, latest book, The Matter with Things, uh, I think there are different ways in which we can get at reality. 
And they do involve science and they do involve reason. I'm passionate about both of them. But neither of those will take us all the way by any means. We also need the capacity for intuition and imagination, which teaches other things that may be very true, but difficult to articulate in the terms of, or reach in terms of um, science and reason. I mean, a good example is music, something that has um, made my life as, as happy as it is and as fulfilled as it is. And yet it is not either encompassable by reason or by science. Neither can really explain why Mozart's G minor quintet is such a profound experience. And starting from there, just going on to the whole business of, of consciousness, you know, what is consciousness? And um, the idea that everything can be reduced to mere matter, that is, if you believe matter is mere at all, which I don't, um, then, you know, um, you're missing an enormous amount in life. And I think the sense of something beyond that is connected to us, in which we all cohere, which has um, an existence that, that suggests something rich and complex and that we have intuitions of and are drawn towards but can never fully grasp. I think that is where I would situate my, my beliefs about the place of the sacred, at any rate, in the idea of the cosmos as a whole. Do you have any reflections on that, Rowan? First of all, um, to say that I'm very impressed you've managed to reduce those two enormous volumes <laughs> to the last five minutes. Um, but that's not an excuse for not reading the two large volumes, I, I hasten to add. A couple of things which, which have always struck me about your work and which struck me in the way you presented it now, which I think are, are key in pushing back at some of the myths that hold us captive in our contemporary culture. First is what you said about mere matter. We think there's a, a nice simple opposition between materialism and something else which is softer and woozier. And that means we buy into a particular mythology about what matter is. We think matter is little lumps of hard stuff. Yeah. It exists in small associations and big associations, but basically it's little lumps of hard stuff. What if we reset our imagination where matter is concerned and think about matter in terms of communication, frequency, energy in different concentrations, which is you know, what any self-respecting physicist will tell you. What if you start there? It all looks a bit different then. And that leads on to the second thing. We've bought into a, a picture of knowledge, which is essentially about something in here, looking out there, labeling, categorizing, and so forth, sitting still while we take a rather slow exposure photograph of it. As if we're saying to the world around, look, don't do anything, just hang on while I fix you. Again, what if the process of knowledge is a matter of attuning to energy communication that is coming to us? What if the form we intuit is active, not just passive? Exactly. And then I suppose that really leads on to the, th the third crucial element in what you're sharing here, which is that our characteristic position in the universe as human subjects is neither that of a sort of mindless instrument of impersonal forces, nor the position of a godlike other who has somehow parachuted 
into this world of little lumps of stuff. Our position is that of someone trying to catch the continuities, trying to go with the flow, quite literally, to make something of the patterns of energy that are communicating to us. And part of that, and this is a key to the, the sort of granular work that you set out, especially in volume one of the two books, part of this is the recognition that our brains are so constituted that it's not a matter of hard and soft bits of knowledge, but granular and integrative kinds of knowledge. If you're capable of recognizing eyes, noses, and mouths, but have no idea what a face is, then there's something a bit wrong in how you're relating. And I'd love to hear you say more about the, the actual um, experimental evidence from the neurological world that, that helps fix that. Th those are the things which I, I've really taken as the, the take-home messages from, from the books. Yes, thank you. And I, I probably won't, because of time, go into the detail of the neurology, but, but thank you for, for that recognition that, 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 that there is something there that I think is important about two entirely different ways of attending to the world. The prime difference between the hemispheres is the kind of attention they pay. And I'm not going to take up a lot of time on the hemisphere hypothesis, but what is important is that the left hemisphere um, sees these fixed things that the camera was photographing, as you referred to. So granular, atomistic, isolated, decontextualized, abstracted, fixed. Whereas the right hemisphere sees that in reality, everything is connected ultimately to everything else, that it's never completely fixed or known or certain, is knowable, and we can have greater degrees of certainty and truth about it, but it is not a final thing that exists out there. It is, comes from a relationship. And this is the really key thing. I argue in The Matter of Things that relationships are what the universe is made of, and that the relata, the things that are related, emerge secondarily from the web of relationships. I know that sounds paradoxical, but we haven't time to, to, to go into that perhaps too much, but the point there is that things only become what they are, those things we think we see, because of where they're situated in relation to everything else and the full context in which they inhere. And so that perception changes the way we think of knowledge. It's not that the stuff out there that we can more faithfully or other re otherwise record simply passively, it's something about if we really want to know it, we have to enter into a relationship with it. And that means that something of us goes into the experience of whatever it is we experience, no surprises in that. But it does not, I emphatically insist, does not lead anywhere near a sort of postmodern belief that we all just make it up. I, I resist that with every fiber of my being. I think instead we have a task, a duty, which is to follow truthfully our intuitions where they, where they seem to be testable and true in the experience of life. And that there is a truth, but it is something that we approach in a spirit of approximation and, and trust. In a relationship, you trust the other, and trust and truth have the same origin. So I believe that whatever it is that we know and experience ultimately comes out of relationships. And of course, in the Christian religion, but also in other religions, the ground of being, whatever word one uses to describe that, is love. And love is nothing 
accept a relation. And the way you put it there reminds me of um, the way in which somebody like St. Augustine um, talks about knowledge itself. We don't know unless we love. And he doesn't by that mean we know what we feel warmly about. He means simply that we have an investment in our knowing. This is about me and how I'm going to be and how I'm going to receive and give. And when I'm in that kind of relationship, truth actually impresses upon me. I am in an adequate or appropriate relationship with what is coming to me, and that's truthfulness. But precisely because it's relational, it's also time-based. You can't freeze it. You can't say, well, that's, that's it, and that's all that there ever will be to say. And the other dimension, which I think comes through very powerfully in, in your book, In the Matter with Things, is the role of time. Yes. And the way in which um, certain kinds of dysfunction of the brain manifest themselves as an inability to cope with time sequence yes. and an inability to see oneself as a time-bound subject. Now, that, to me, is both is coming at it from a philosophical point of view and coming at it from a, a religious and theological point of view makes absolute sense. We are, of our very nature, time-taking beings. Mm. Growth is part of what we are. And if your ideal of knowledge is a set of, again, frozen photographs, which will be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, to use a theological phrase, then there's something, again, you've really missed there. Mm. But I want to come back, mm. if I may, into the, the word intuition, yes. which you used. I would hazard a guess that for a lot of people in an audience like this, the word intuition has a very slightly loose feeling. Yes. You know, oh, I've got an intuition that that's the case. Yes. Um, but I think you're saying something rather stronger than that, aren't you? That there's, yes. there's a, a cohesive connection-making capacity that is just inbuilt in our mental process, which, name it intuition or whatever, but it's, it's stronger than just a vague feeling, isn't it? Yes, I mean, intuitions can deceive us. There's no question about that. And that's a point of view that's put about and makes a lot of money for bands of psychologists who go into organisations all around the world and say, never trust your intuitions. However, this is very foolish advice. And what we need to do is not always trust, but certainly not never to trust, but to pay adequate respect to our intuitions. The same is true of reason and science. They can lead us to mistaken places. Even reason can, believe me. <laughs> I'm a great believer in science and reason, but they are not able to tell the full story. And intuition can tell us enormous amounts. And when you have to collapse an intuition, which is often implicit, into an expression in language, it becomes single, explicit, and defined by language. Whereas when it remains at an intuitive level, uh, as many as 12 or 15 different strands of knowledge and experience are being brought together and weighed together. As a result of that, uh, a jurist, uh, in other words, an academic um, a specialist in the law in Germany, the head of one of the Max Planck Institutes, say, says that in every organization people should be encouraged as much as possible to understand their intuitions, use their intuitions, and of course examine their intuitions. I was thinking there of um, something I've, I've quoted more than once in recent months, <laughs> and that is uh, Phil Whitaker writing in the New Statesman a couple of years ago about online diagnostic tools in medicine. <laughs> Oh, yes. And the strength and the weakness. Yeah. 
because the weakness is that there will always be, in a physician's diagnosis, elements that do not yield readily to precise formulation, but without which you will get things disastrously wrong in your perception of what's there, because the online tools can only give you information in response to certain questions. And those will be the questions you are aware of. But if you're a good physician, you will know in the diagnostic process that there are things you are picking up which you don't know you're picking up, and that those will be feeding in somewhere to your overall response. And I think it's that, that holistic sense and the sense of what you're not actually bringing to the forefront of your mind that is important. It's not flabby, it's not mm. loose and depressionistic, yes. but it's very hard to nail down. Yes, I mean, online tools can be trained, obviously, on masses and masses of expert um, knowledge. And then we think that they're doing what an expert does. And sometimes they can be very helpful because they can work faster um, than the human mind often works. But they can be disastrously wrong because everything, this is a simple point, but a very important one. Everything depends on its context. And the context of symptoms is a whole person, a life, and all sorts of circumstances that are going on before and after the consultation and around it. So you're always dealing again in a relationship. And what an AI tool doesn't give us the option of is a relationship. It may simulate dangerously one and and lead to a great deal of of, um, untruth and suffering, but... It is that relationship that matters. And, and you know, what you were quoting Augustine, and of course there are others like Pascal who learned a lot from Augustine, who said that first you must love something if you are to understand it. But of course people would say, but you can only love it when you understand it. And there's some truth in what I'm getting at there is a circular process or a recurrent reverberative process. So you, you commit yourself harshly to something and you see what happens. And what happens guides your response and its response. And you won't find this by sitting calmly reading a book. (laughs) You have to be immersed in the living process. It's like trying to learn to swim by sitting on the bank of a river with a book and saying, yes, I think I know now how to swim. You actually have to get into the water. Mm. That's that's an absolutely key point, I think, because it it takes us back to to precisely this um, vastly ambitious subject we're supposed to be talking about, the nature of reality. Is reality being conceived, imagined as a mechanical process which can, in principle, be described from nowhere in particular? Yes. And can we occupy that nowhere in particular position, which is the assumption that's frequently made, or is it something which is very much more like learning to swim? Um, Adjusting, receiving messages, physically and mentally and imaginatively, calibrating where we are, how we are, Shifting our balance without quite knowing why, as, as when we're walking up a steep incline, we, yes. all, all of this is, is knowledge and all of this is our share in reality as such. Yes. But yes. just to yes. put, put that in a, a different kind of cultural context, yes. it occurred to me during the, the pandemic period that one of the tensions we were experiencing, among many others, was on the one hand, the solemn adjuration about following the science, and then sometimes a very deep skepticism about the science, because you know the science didn't give us the answers straight away. And it, it made me think that perhaps we're just expecting too much of science, exactly. or expecting the wrong things. Mm. We're expecting the wrong kind of precision. Yes. Scientific studies can give us 
a fantastic level of precision in a number of respects, mm. unimaginable a generation ago. Mm. And that's wonderful. And neither you nor I want to be Luddite about that in any way at all. Absolutely not. But if you over-egg the expectations of what science can deliver, if you say, follow the science and your course of action will be clear, and the science isn't clear and you're not clear about course of action, the danger is the pendulum swinging into an irrationalism, anti-scientific and ultimately anti-truth mm. mindset, which we've seen plenty of. In yes, and I think that what you're illuminating is our tendency to want to be black and white about things, when in reality there are shades and contexts that change the weight one should give to something. I'm slightly sympathetic to you know, the people who are lambasted for saying follow the science, because at the time they didn't know what they were dealing with and they thought that it really could be an absolutely devastating plague. And, and so it's, it's okay to use the retrospectoscope, but really one needs to be compassionate to people's um, situation and the judgments that they make at those times. What I worry about though is the tendencies towards um, um, total control, monitoring, um, rule following and so forth that has come up in the wake of COVID and doesn't seem to be being repealed fast enough for me. But can I just come back to what you were saying about intuition? Because I wanted to bring in the important concept of imagination. Yes. And, and you, of course, Rona, are, are a poet. And imagination was something that Coleridge wrote about probably more interestingly than anybody in English. And of course, he was a poet, but he was also a, a very distinguished philosopher. And he put in the foremost place for our understanding of the world, imagination. Nowadays, we tend to think that imagination is something that takes us away from reality. But what he meant was our only chance of actually entering into reality fully. And in fact, um, he made a distinction that I remember when I was an undergraduate, I found a little bit tiresome but seems to be now deeply important, between what he called primary imagination and secondary imagination. And by primary imagination, he meant something that we all indulge in all the time, which is our ability to feel our way towards and bring into being something that is only a potential for us initially. And that that is rather like what a poet does. There's a sense, to the little that I've written poems, I have this feeling that there's some shape there and some phrases, and it, it's not like something that's built up sequentially, but it's more like a picture that's out of focus that very gradually comes into focus. So again, it's not a linear process, a, a holistic process. And the distinction he made between primary and secondary imagination was that secondary imagination is what poets and musicians and other people do. But primary imagination is the origin of that, which is the thing we do all the time. So we are creating the world. We have, an, we have a duty, we have a purpose, we have a role. You can shrug it off, you can deny it, but I would caution against doing that hastily because it may be part of our role here to discover the nature of reality. And often when people talk from the standpoint of someone like myself or Rowan, who, I, who is arguing for a, a complex world that, of course, does not deny science or reason, but goes beyond them. One of the things they say is that we're making things up. Really, there is no contact with reality. We're like homunculuses sitting in an intracerebral sphere that has no windows on it. And all we're watching is a film projected interiorly. 
I deeply disagree with that. Our knowledge is, of course, partial, but not in the sense that it only goes part way towards reality. It's partial in the sense that it, any one person can only perhaps see what they can see. But nonetheless, what they see is actually real. And so, therefore, when people say, you know, purpose and value, which are so important to human flourishing, are things we invent to cheer ourselves up. You see, they're not inventions. They are discoveries. We are uncovering things that are there. And I hold that purpose and values like goodness, beauty, and truth are primordial, they are ontologically primitive, they are part of the nature of consciousness. Whatever we mean by consciousness, it's always directed towards something, and that something is guided by values and purpose, which are intrinsic. And scientists are now beginning to recognize purpose at any rate, and beginning to talk about it more freely. But you know, the, the, the tr trouble was that in the past, science um, started from very reasonable premises that it was not going to consider value or purpose. It was going to see where it could go without those. But at the end of the day, it then reports back that having thoroughly examined anything, it can't find any values or purpose, which brings us back to the idea of needing to be given partly to it to find it at all. That's right. I, I think it's, in a way, it's coming to see that knowledge is itself just one aspect of a much wider human project, if you want to put it like that, which is the project of being at home with the real. Ah, absolutely. And when you talk about goodness or beauty or truthfulness, all of those are slightly, um, you know, glowing traditional words for being at home with reality, yes. one way or another. And the essence, therefore, of the ugly, the irrational, the sinful, whatever, is a jarring with what is real, which is deeply costly to what is real, including ourselves. So I think that's, that's absolutely axiomatic in, in looking at this in, in the wider perspective. And I think Coleridge on primary imagination is a really, really helpful corrective to the assumption that somehow making connections between things is a, an optional extra for us in our intellectual activity. We do it. We cannot not do it. Because, but what he would say is that it's not that we make those connections. It is they, already they are discovered, as you say. It, yes. It's indissolubly yes. a whole. Yes. And but he says, in certain casts of mind, the universe just seems to me a heap of fragments. But that's when he's thinking, as it were, with the left hemisphere away. Yes. yes. And so I think the reality is continuity. And um, even David Tong, the professor of physics at Cambridge, thinks that physical mm. reality is at ground continuous. And it's that togetherness and wholeness yes. that we yes. are uncovering. And so I, I like that very much. And it seems to me that we need to talk quite a lot more in our educational philosophy and educational practice about the two most remarkable and important aspects of our mental activity, mistakes and surprises. If we were simply sitting in the hermetically sealed cell of our cerebral activity, making stuff up. There would be no mistakes and no surprises. No mistakes because our thinking would never run into anything difficult. No surprises because there wouldn't be something that we hadn't seen coming down the road. But our human activity from nuclear physics through to poetry yes. is all about mistakes and surprises, I think. That's a very, very good point. 
And, and I do absolutely agree that one of the reasons one can take it that one is encountering something other than one's own thinking is that often one finds that something doesn't work or is wrong and one has to say one's got a surprise. Yes, yes. Do you think, like me, that one of the problems for the English-speaking world is that we only have one word for no, but in most other cultures there's more than one word. One means knowing facts in the sense from the outside, the left hemisphere, knowing that Paris is the capital of France, but also another kind of knowing, which only comes through experience of actually having spent a year or two in Paris. And, you know, they're Kenan and Wissen and they're Cornette and Savoie, but I gather from other people speaking many other languages that this is pretty much the case. But I think a lot of the wrongness with Anglo-American analytic philosophy comes from misunderstanding what, means by, what we mean by no. Gubod and Nabod in Welsh. Is that it? Yes. yes. Thank you. I've learned something. Adnabod, having importantly the connotations of recognizing. Recognizing, so, exactly. Um, Not cognizing, but recognizing something that is there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's again a reminder that the, we look back at our intellectual history and we, we iron out the, the difficulties, the, um, the diversities. And one thing that has always and rumbled alongside the mainstream of Anglo-American philosophy is that tradition going back at least to the 17th century in English language philosophy of what's sometimes called probabilism, the idea that our knowledge is based on accumulating a whole wide range of acquaintanceship with things, out of which eventually comes an integrative solution that suggests itself rather than imposes itself. And from some of the Cambridge Platonists through to Bishop Berkeley in the 18th century to Coleridge and Newman in the 19th century. And then I suppose you could say in some ways to writers like Iris Murdoch in the 20th century as well as surprisingly, really surprisingly, Wittgenstein. Um, all of these have notions of certainty and knowledge and conclusion, conclusive knowledge that are very non-mechanistic that always assume that there are things going on in my processes of learning that I will not be conscious of, but will nonetheless be determinative for where I get to and where, to use an image I quite like it, where I decide to put my weight. Yes. Is this a load-bearing yes. way of yes. you know, moving through yes. the world? And I suppose what that brings to my mind is people ask me sometimes, could there be an AI version of what the right hemisphere does? And I think the answer to that has to be no because its knowledge is non-computable. It, it simply is as, as um, it's something that can't be done using algorithms or procedures and involves being an embodied being with the awareness of one's mortality and all the things that one feels because of the relationships that make us who we are. Because however much we may pretend that we are individuals, we are the products of, and we owe everything to, the society to which we belong, the people. When I say society, I mean the group of people with whom we belong. Um, and actually, you mentioned this business of being at home. I do love this, because what we've lost is the sense of the Earth or the cosmos as a home. It, it's, and I think it's a mistake because we've discovered there's a vast extent to space and, and, and the sheer scale of it makes one think so. But this has actually nothing to do with whether we are at home in it. And that feeling of being at home is very important to recover. And I think it depends on re-establishing our sense of oneness with other people 
oneness with nature and oneness with the higher power, with God, with the spiritual realm, whatever it is. And I can demonstrate scientifically and do in my work the extraordinary benefits that occur or, or, or result from adopting these positions, but that's not the reason for doing them. It's because they are intrinsically good, not for some utility we will acquire. And they bring us understanding. And I think understanding needs to be glossed as well because there's knowledge, isn't there? And there's even information that comes before knowledge. There's data. And then there's knowledge which comes from being able to make some sort of sense out of it. And then there's understanding, which is the business of something deeper in which you actually see the nature of what it is you're encountering and it has full reality. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.